0: Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we use the brains that God gave us. These past several weeks, I've been doing episodes defending the cosmic temple inauguration view of Genesis 1 as well as defending the archetypal interpretation of Adam and Eve as put forth in John Walton's book, The Lost World of Adam and Eve. Although, unfortunately, I didn't get to talk about the priestly roles Adam and Eve had in the garden. I did this. I did all of these episodes and all of the blog posts that went aw- that correlate with those uh, podcast episodes, because science and faith is—it's a big stumbling block for a lot of people. They, um, a lot of people, walk away from faith because they don't think Christianity and science are compatible. And I defended the, the interpretations I did because I think they're faithful to the authorial intent and cultural context. I don't think Genesis chapters 1 to 3 are incompatible with an old Earth and evolution. And neither does my next guest, S. Joshua Swamidas. S. Joshua Swamidas is a scientist, physician, and associate professor of laboratory and genomic medicine at Washington University in St. Louis, where he uses artificial intelligence to explore science at the intersection of medicine, biology, and chemistry. He is a Veritas forum speaker and blogs at Peaceful Science, www.peacefulscience.org. Today we're going to be talking about a book that he has. It's going to be released on December 10th of this year. uh, In it, it, he defends a fascinating model of Adam and Eve that allows one to interpret Genesis 2 as teaching de novo creation. You can affirm that Adam and Eve are ancestors of us all. And you don't have to reject any of the evolutionary science in doing so. You don't have to tweak your scientific views to accept this model. It's so nice to have you on the podcast today, uh, Dr. Swamidass. How have you been?
1: Oh, thanks for having me, uh, Evan. It's been fun getting to know you a little bit online and seeing what you're up to. It'll, I'm looking forward to this conversation.
0: So am I. Um, first, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself besides... Your professions and credentials that I just uh, mentioned. Like, what was your experience coming to Christ? How did you get interested in science?
1: Yeah, so I was uh, born to uh, my parents, who are Indian immigrants. Uh, I'm. I just turned 41, so I might be the generation older than you. I don't know. I still kind of feel like a kid at times, <laughs> but my family um, was, and and in many ways still is, young Earth creationists. And so that's kind of the understanding of scripture that just seemed really obvious to us when we read scripture. And the issue, though, for me was that I was really called to science. God made me for science. I was drawn to it. And uh, and our, that's where I really experienced a real a real clash of different stories of origins, which all of us are very accustomed to. There's a story that we that it seems in. How most people through history have read Genesis is that it seems to be talking about a real couple in a real past that were created suddenly without parents in the relatively recent past, and their ancestors of all of us. So that's the story I learned, and then you know from home, and then at, you know on the Discovery Channel, at science class, and all those other places, I would be encountered with this other story that we share a common ancestry with the great apes. And there's this large population that we rise from, not a single couple. Now, at first, I have to say it was a really challenging and difficult thing. I wrote about this, too. Uh, there's an article online called Finding Confident Faith in Science. And I say that because that's really my story in science. Because when I started, it was really an attempt to find confident faith when I was really faced with that conflict. And I really encountered over and over and over again uh, that I would place my faith in, in arguments against evolution whether it be young Earth creationist arguments, and then later on intelligent design arguments, and then find out that those arguments weren't enough to give me a confident faith. In fact, they led to a very unstable faith, where uh, everything was really threatened by what was out there. Uh, what happened at a certain point is, well, you know, things just really changed. When I became a Christian, it depends how you count it, right? But uh, I actually have memories of when I was about two years old. What happened was that my mom, uh, who is a Christian, was taking care of me, and I went up to her and I said, "You know what happens when you die?" Now, uh, the reason why this it was, um, well, first of all, I have a two, I have a three or four year old. I cannot imagine that that kid asking me a question like this. He <laughs> would never ask me this, but apparently, I asked this to my mom, and at the time, I had a fever, and so my mom really panicked and she didn't think i was old enough to understand the gospel or whatever but she panicked and she thought i was saying this because i was going to die and so she just kind of said oh and talked to me about jesus and then i said oh okay you believe i and so i believe too so that's when i really first came to believe and that that initial gospel is really i think you know a simple childlike faith and then when I would encounter all these arguments in science, I would move away from that into really thinking that it's because evolution's false that maybe I should have confidence. And what happened was that I returned back to that faith that I had when I was a lot younger and really realized that it's really through Jesus making himself known through this man, or God making himself known through this man, Jesus, that he exists, he's good and wants to be known. That that's really where I found a confident faith. And kind of with that really taken care of, I was able to really approach science anew Really see for the first time that there might be a bit more evidence for this whole evolutionary science thing that I'd really been willing to grant before, but it didn't really matter so much because there wasn't nearly as much at risk. So that's my story.
0: Yeah, that that's you know that's that's kind of the way that I feel too. Uh, I I can resonate. Uh, with your testimony i was also raised in a christian home southern baptist i i remember believing in jesus christ well well you know my testimony is that i really didn't you know have that full-blown commitment until i was 17 but yeah i i was a theist and i also try you know tried to read anti-evolution materials to try to refute evolution because i thought oh this is like if this is if this is true the atheists are right the genesis is false and the whole thing collapses and but then i started reading you know a whole lot of materials from christians who accepted evolution and say we don't see any problem here and eventually like you i came to realize you know what there really isn't any any conflict at all and i started reading the you know, I, I reopened the scientific investigation for evolution, and I, I saw, man, there's a there's
1: a lot here. Yeah. So for me, I think it was probably a few things. One, it was probably three things. The first thing was, uh, was placing my confidence really in what God did in history through Jesus. And there's a lot of evidence for the resurrection. Actually, the last, uh, the the appendix of the book is titled uh, evidence and the resurrection because i think that was really a core thing for me is actually seeing that there's actually stuff out there that actually points to this and that's actually what first corinthians 15 talks about that's what jesus talks about they're, they're the, the one sign of uh, that he gets to spe- skeptics is the sign of jonah so that was one thing the other thing was actually getting a chance to see the evidence myself so i don't know i know everyone doesn't get a chance to do that but for me as, as a scientist i actually got to see the evidence myself and especially. When the genetic evidence became clear, and I understood it, it, it was it was just really, really clear that it looks, at the very least, like common descent. And then the and then the, then the last piece, and I think all three of them were really important for me, is really seeing how this really made sense with scripture. Now, I do think that there are a lot of Christians out there that talk about there's no conflict between evolution and science, and usually what they mean by that is that um, that a traditional reading of Genesis isn't actually true we know that because of science so if you change your view of how what scripture means to a new view then you'll see there's no conflict so obviously you know if you believe that adam and eve are a myth i know you don't believe that necessarily evan but if you believe that adam and eve are a are myth then of course you're not going to see any conflict but this seems to be sidestepping the issue for a lot of christians and it's certainly sidestepped the issue for me because i I didn't know if I could really go with that, and I didn't want to be having my interpretation of Scripture so strongly influenced by what science was saying. I wanted to really treat it as authoritative, and that just didn't feel right.
0: Yeah, I mean, same here. I mean, when I when I would read defenses of uh, the allegorical view of Genesis 1 to 11, I'm like, this just seems so forced. It's like this is just not how – I don't think this is what Moses was trying to convey
1: yeah, I mean, I think the, the place where they really run aground, I think, is if you look at through most Christians, through most of history, they've really come away with this view that I gave before, you know, that how many were de novo created suddenly without parents. It's actually worked its way into statements of faith long before even evolution was even, um, you know, uh, put forward by Darwin, uh, which is incidentally 160 years ago. Almost exactly, right? or exactly, Oh, yeah, right. right, right
0: yeah. yeah, by the time this podcast Goes up uh, on anchor and, and people are listening to it. It will be the 160th anniversary of the publication of the Origins of Species. I mean, what what a coincidence!
1: Yeah, it's kind of crazy. So yeah, like so with, with that, you know, um that's how most people have seen it, and like what I call like the traditional de novo view of Adam and Eve. And most people thought that that understanding of Adam and Eve was false, and you know. And you can push on the story in different ways. Um, generally, people thought you had to either choose between common descent of the great apes or de novo creation. You have to choose between having Adam recent in a way that kind of fits into history the way how Genesis really connects it, it seems, to the rise of civilization. Or uh, monogenesis, the idea that we all descend from Adam and Eve. You have to choose between those two. And then also uh, there's this choice between either it's historical or it's mythical. But really what you see, I think, when you look at the, 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 you know, the Christian tradition of thought on this, is you really see that, um, that, you know, different traditions in the church will emphasize different things, but you really see that, like, a long, continuous view of that. And I think what evolution did is it really ended up really pitting different traditions against one another. And that's part of the reason why it's been so difficult for the church to work through. Certainly there's certain traditions that have no problem with evolution, But there are many traditions that do have a real challenge with it, and and that's, I think, what has made evolution so unsettling for the church, at least part of it. Now, um, what I think is exciting is, in my book, I show how those are all false dilemmas, that actually all of it could be true at the same time. It could be that there are people outside the garden, that that God created by a process of common descent, providentially governed a process of evolution to make people outside the garden, and that... Adam and Eve are created de novo without parents in the relatively recent past, less than 10,000 years ago, maybe even just 6,000 years ago, and in the Middle East. And they'd be ancestors of everyone, ancestors of everyone alive across the earth since the time of Jesus. And um, that's surprising. People didn't know that that was possible before. I think for 150, 60 years, people have just assumed that that was not possible. And I think the exciting thing about this book is we find out that whether it's true or not whether or not you think that's a myth or it's the wrong way to read scripture or not kind of setting that aside for a moment uh, science doesn't tell us it's false that's actually not where the conflict is
0: yeah that's and that's that's very uh, that was very eye-opening for me because i i thought that 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 was one of the reasons that i uh, was so slow to accept evolution was i just didn't know how to do uh, what to do with with adam and eve now can you explain to our listeners what the and this is the title of your book also the genealogical adam and eve can you tell us what the genealogical adam and eve hypothesis is like just give us a a brief ever uh, overview of what the hypothesis is
1: yeah what i would say is you could call it a hypothesis you could call it a thought experiment you certainly have to don't have to believe that evolution is true to enter this thought experiment with me You don't have to believe that Adam and Eve are real to enter this thought experiment with me. But it's just a question. It's like an exploration. You can consider it science fiction if you want or theological fiction, right? (laughs) But the idea is that maybe, uh, you know, the Bible uh, and the way how it's been interpreted by most Christians and most of history, this traditional view that I gave you. And science, meaning mainstream evolutionary science, are really describing the same reality, the same physical world just with different concerns, emphases, and, um, and uh, language. And what's going on is that it's entirely possible, the way I put it, it's entirely possible. This is going to sound like anti-Earth creationism. <laughs> and that's because uh, they're the ones who, who, who talk in a way that really echoes the traditional view, even though their view isn't exactly traditional. But uh, what I showed is that it's entirely consistent with the genetic evidence, entirely consistent with mainstream evolutionary science, entirely consistent with the archaeological evidence and everything, that Adam and Eve were created de novo without parents from the dust in a rib. And I don't mean that weaselly. I mean that literally uh, in, the, in the Middle East, in a divinely created garden, and Uh, When they fell and were expelled from the garden, their offspring ended up interbreeding with the people outside the garden, and thereby they became the ancestors of everyone by the time Paul writes Romans, and by the time that Jesus ascends to heaven and commissions the the apostles to spread uh, spread the good news to the ends of the earth. So So Eve would be the mother of all the living. Adam and Eve would be our first parents. All of those things to be true, and in fact, we'd arise by sole genealogical progenitorship for them. Now, here, that's a key word. I said genealogical there. I don't mean genetic. Genetic means DNA, um, and DNA is a very recent discovery. We only figured it out, like you know, depending on exactly where you put the marker in, it's been within the last century we figured out what DNA was. You know, when 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 traditional theology over the last two thousand years, and when Scripture has spoken about ancestry. It's never been about DNA. It's only been about parents giving rise to offspring and children and lineages. It's never really been about DNA. And so when you keep that in mind, what I suggest and I show actually is that one valid theological position is to define uh, theologically, not scientifically, but just theologically, humans as the humans of Scripture, I would say humans to whom scripture is referring not to mean that other people aren't you know human but they're not the humans of scripture as adam even their descendants so those humans do arise from a single couple there's no humans before them there's no humans around the globe after them by that definition and they spread out across the globe and become uh the become all of us so we all descend from adam and eve so that's the crazy idea i had and i went and tested that scientifically I tested it theologically and hermeneutically just to see if it's a valid place. And I think I've convinced a lot of people from across the spectrum in a way that I'm really truly humbled by that this is an idea worth considering. I mean, we don't know if it's wrong or right, but there's a really fun conversation to be had about it right now.
0: Yeah. Can you go a little bit into the difference between genealogical ancestry and genetic ancestry? Uh, Most of us, uh, at least non-scientist i think most of us just conflate the two we think that they're one and the same and honestly this this was one of the things that i had a hard time wrapping my head around when i first read your book i had to read that read that section twice uh explain to our listeners the difference between genealogy and the difference between genetics and how someone can be my genealogical ancestor without also being my genetic ancestor
1: first of all isn't that cool It is I mean It's funny You say For those of us That aren't scientists I'm telling you A lot of scientists A lot of biologists End up having to read That chapter multiple times (laughs) Oh really? Yeah It's very non-intuitive Why do you think that is? Um, I don't know (laughs) Well so here's Here's how I explain it I think that'll make A little bit of sense So um, All of us have parents um, our, our parents, my mom and my dad, are both 100% my genealogical ancestors. I'm 100% their kid, right? Um, yes. And if I go back one more generation, their grandparents are 100% my genealogical ancestors, right? Each one of them individually is 100% a genealogical ancestor of mine. But if I flip it around and ask how much they're my genetic ancestors are, they are, I get a different answer. That means how much DNA did I get from them? And so my parents are about 50%. They're each giving me 50% of my genome. So they're only 50% my genetic ancestors. And my grandparents are one, no, like 25% or one quarter. So one half, one quarter, my uh, my my genetic ancestors. Even though they're my fully my genealogical ancestors. So what's going on is that as I go back, if I go to great grandparents. It's now one eighth and great great grandparents it's 1 16th and it keeps on going down and we say it's an exponential decay it means it decays really really rapidly but my but they're all hundred percent my genealogical ancestors they all appear in my family tree and that's just the way it works and it turns out very very quickly the amount of DNA I get from my ancestors starts to approach zero which means that actually at around 10 generations from, in the past, which is just like maybe about, you know, 300 years ago in the past, um, and 15 generations back, the majority of my ancestors end up being ancestors that are 100% genealogical ancestors, but, but most of them don't give me any DNA. And so, so even though, you know, genetics is a really powerful way of understanding very close relationships in the recent past. Even though it gives us a really uh, beautiful view into the very distant past about populations, it doesn't really give us much information at all about genetic relationships. I'm oh, sorry, about genealogical relationships in the relatively recent past of just like a couple thousand years ago. So Adam and Eve, if they exist, they're just in a blind spot of science. We just wouldn't be able to see them.
0: Interesting. So in sense of it, from what you're writing. <laughs>
1: Huh? Does what? that make more sense of it from what you read?
0: Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, now, in chapter four of your book, you say that not only is, is this uh, possible, but we should expect universal genealogical, not, not genetic, but universal genealogical ancestors of us all. Explain the scientific reasoning behind this assertion. Maybe unpack this a little bit for our audience.
1: Yeah, so this is kind of one of the paradoxes of how science works. Like on one hand, if you look at it from one way, we don't have any evidence one way or the other um, in the sense that we don't we're not have genetic evidence that demonstrates uh, that Eve don't exist or that they do exist. We don't have genetic evidence that will demonstrate that they were de novo created or not because we don't have any DNA from them. And so um, that, that's true. And at the same time, we can still make rational scientific estimates of when universal ancestors arise. Now, let's think about that. So, um, you know, we all have parents and we have a lineage that we all know about. Um, and so for me, I know who my parents are. I know who my grandparents are. If I go talk to my mom who's still living, I could find out who my great-grandparents are and maybe my great-great-grandparents are. Okay? And if I did so, a lot of research, maybe i get a few more. But I wouldn't be able to remember everyone. I mean, I, honestly, I don't even. I can't even really think much farther back than my grandparents, or maybe my grand grandmother at some point. So, um, and at some point, you know, we're also going to lose track of genealogical records too. So even if we find records, they won't be complete, and they're not going to go back that far, right? Right. But there's a question I can still ask. I can ask what about what time in history? did my great 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 grandfathers live that's a valid question right mm-hmm. and i can produce an estimate of that by you know estimating about how many generations back i can even get data behind this to guess about how long each generation lasted and i can produce an estimate i can find out depending on how many greats there are there if like that was a century ago if that was two centuries ago or whatever right and that's That's what I can do, even if I don't actually have, um, you know, clear genetic evidence, but that's a very clear, valid way of reasoning. Now, in the same sort of way, we can actually start building a simple model, and then we can actually test that with simulations to figure out when it is that genealogical ancestors, universal ancestors, arise. It turns out that it's hard to do this, but someone did, and they got a paper published in 2004 um, into Nature, which is a leading science journal, where they did this and simulated the entire globe's population um, through um, through um, a simplified model in an important way. It simplified it in a way that it made it a lot harder to get universal ancestors. And they found out that just in a couple thousand years, we all descend from people. And not only that, it's people all over the place. It's not like it's a single person in a particular place in the globe. And we're not really interested in it. We don't need Adam to be the most recent universal ancestors they could really just be anyone who's a universal ancestor so really it starts to just become something that we just see everywhere and that's good news it just means that that's what our best estimate is i mean i say that pointing at the um that nature 2004 study that was about uh 15 years ago that study came out and since then there's been several other studies that have come out that have that have examined that conclusion or provided additional um, information and evidence relevant to it. And I review all of this in the book as well and show that it actually strengthens the conclusion of that paper. And I published a paper in 2018 that, I, uh, that actually was the basis for the first part of the book, where I kind of take that study as a basis to really bring that more to bear with the, 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 the direct questions that are arising when we think about Adam and Eve from a theological point of view. So it turns out that it just turns out that our best estimate of when universal ancestors arise is, um, you know, if we care about all the people from Jesus's time onward, we think the most uh, that we expect them that most people across the globe will be universal ancestors by six thousand years ago, about six thousand years ago, and any time previous to that.
0: Yeah, that is that is very very cool. Um, you talk about how the, the idea of isolated individuals, you have a chapter on this, how it could, po- right. yeah, could pose a challenge to your model. And you, you go to show how, as your title hints at, isolation is a myth. Could you get into that for our audience here?
1: Yeah, so the, um, the title of the chapter is called The Mythology of Isolation. Part of it has to do with some deep understand- misunderstandings we have about race. Um, it, there's a really widespread misunderstandings. I've even encountered them among scientists that really believe that different populations of humans have been separated for very long times in the past. That was, that's a very old view that we've had. Um, it, it, it's certainly found in science. It's also certainly found in theology. It just turns out to be totally and utterly false. And we have mountains of evidence that demonstrate it's not true. It turns out that almost everywhere we look, we see loads and loads of evidence genetic evidence often but not even just genetic evidence that that populations even when they have a view that they've been isolated for a long time really aren't they've been mixing with their neighbors and and so that idea of humans being human populations just being kind of isolated off and evolving in different ways or changing this it's just not true it's not even really helpful and and there's a ton of evidence against it and that evidence has actually really grown dramatically with the advent of ancient DNA, when we're able to go look at old uh, human remains from thousands of years ago and, and get DNA out of that and look to see what that tells us about the past, we see over and over again that there's migrations and intermixing and inter- intermarriage and all that sort of stuff happening that was never recorded in history books that was you can never see in any other way, and it's real, it's there. And so what we're finding is actually, in many ways, it reminds me of what happened. At the beginning of about a hundred years ago, actually, at the beginning of the 19th century. So back then, Christians really believed in creation, and science thought was arguing. Many scientists were arguing that the, that the universe was eternal. And then there started to become more and more evidence that the that the universe was expanding, right? Yeah. And and that meant I mean that was a bit of an embarrassment for the eternalists because that meant that there had to be some sort of beginning. <laughs> and and that's where the big Bang cosmology comes from. It was actually a Catholic who uh, uh, you know a physicist that that was part of that. It ends up becoming like one of the, the core bases for um William Lane Craig's work on the you know on the cosmological argument and, and all of that right
0: yeah, and, that oh, yeah. And, I- and i talk I talk about the Big Bang all the time. I use the Kalam cosmological argument uh, in my blog and in my book the case for the one true god and i had a i had a couple of podcast episodes on it i talk about the big bang all the time
1: yeah so what i think is interesting about the big bang is it's not quite what anyone historically would have precisely imagined but it provides such a solid uh, you know i'm not sure what the right word is i mean i don't want to say validation or whatever but i mean it's such a solid like surprise result in science that grants legitimacy to the christian view of a beginning that um that i mean then you have people like that actually start wondering if that's what actually scripture really meant in the first place i don't know if that's what scripture really meant but it's certainly consistent in a very surprising way right so i think that's what we're actually facing here let me explain to you what i mean like over the last 500 years part of the church's tradition has been to affirm the idea of the doctrine of monogenesis, which simple, simply, most simply stated and most clearly stated, is that we all descend from Adam and Eve. That has become one of the core confessions of orthodoxy. That is why, for example, uh, John, Walton, uh, John Walton's work is often received as heterodox, because his work doesn't really engage that. And if you have an Adam as recent as he's saying, he, people have thought that it wouldn't be someone that we all descend from. Um, and so this is also tied up with something called the pre-Adamite controversy, the polygenesis controversy. It started out in theology with the discovery of the new world, but then it continued on into science um, and, and was related to something called scientific racism. Um, and what happened during this time, and it's been one of the major legitimate reasons why conservative theologians have resisted evolution. It's because when they read scripture especially when they read the New Testament, they felt like Scripture was teaching that all mankind was was unified, that there was a unity to mankind. And that unity was established through universal descent from from Adam. You know, we all descend from Adam. Now, what was going on in science? Until very recently, really basically um, about 50 years ago, until about 50 years ago, scientists just disagreed. We thought, That um, that actually different races, a lot of scientists at least thought different races were different species or subspecies that were just pretty, pretty different. Now, in the 70s, it turns out that we find out actually there is only one human race. That's great. But then really over the last 20 years is when we find out this whole idea of recent common genealogical ancestry and which, again, has gotten completely solidly confirmed now in in some really important ways through um, ancient DNA and so now we find out is that our best science tells us is that if Adam and Eve exist, even if they were as recent to 6,000 years ago, we expect that all or at least nearly everyone across the globe descends from them. That. That's in our art- rearticulation of the monogenesis doctrine that the church has really been holding to for a very long time. And in resistance to evolution, now we find out our best understanding actually shows us that that is a completely legitimate view. I think it's pretty
0: exciting. Yeah, yeah, me too. And you know, I I am a big fan of John Walton and his work, and I agree with most of what he says in the Lost World of Adam and Eve. But once you get once he gets to the end of near the end of the book, he starts to uh, address these these scripture texts that seem to say that we're all descended from Adam and Eve. Some of his responses are good, but some of them aren't like he get like he talks about that one that that statement from paul in act 17 where he says one from one man god built all the all the nations and what walton basically says is uh, no he's not he may not be talking about adam he may be talking about noah and when i read that i was like well noah, is a, descend- <laughs> noah is a descendant from adam so doesn't that just move the problem over a little bit so i I'm very glad to, to have your work because I, I do think we, we need to and not just because of those texts but also, you yeah, know, so th- this original sin. Thing. Like how like how do you get the sin nature passed on if we're not all you know, if we don't all trace back to, to Adam. So that this is like a breath of fresh air. I I, I really like the work that you're doing here. okay um, you know, allowing us to affirm the not having to reject the science, but we can still hold like the church has always had that we all go back to Adam and Eve.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think I think you're hitting on the head. I mean, so I actually even talk about Walton's work. I really like Walton. I rely on his work a lot. We're friends. He actually was really kind enough to I never actually had to, had to buy any of his books. He's actually hand, given them to me. It was very kind of him. Oh, Cool. And I've talked to him actually about this. He, um, I think part of what's going on is he's staying in his lane. He's not a New Testament scholar. <laughs> he's an Old Testament scholar. And, and I think... I've asked him about it. I think he'll say, from what I've heard, and maybe he's changed his views, I don't know, but he's explained to me that he thinks Genesis doesn't require historical Adam. It's really when he reads the New Testament that he feels like he needs it. However... Um, however, he never really explains that Because he's not a New Testament scholar <laughs> Yeah um, And so that kind of leaves it Kind of like monologue So you know there's some things that are important in the background But he's kind of giving a monologue About the Old Testament And then, um, you know, a lot of scientists just ha- I don't think have really taken seriously The concerns that, uh, that Conservative theologians have had on this And so there's just a real missed nice opportunity For a real conversation to be had So I think it's pretty exciting now But, you know, for example, Walton's view, I think, is is a really good view of Scripture in many ways. I wish he would flush out his view of the New Testament. But what was missing, actually, was how he'd been explained the science He'd been told that there's no way that that Adam you're talking about could be ancestors of everyone. That just turns out to be false. And so it turns out that even with a Waltonian reading of Genesis, as Jack Collins would put it, and he means it disparagingly, but I don't. <laughs> in, a, in a in a Waltonian reading of Genesis, you could still affirm monogenesis. And that's a big deal.
0: Yeah, um, I, I agree. I think... Um, and this is what Reasons to Believe has been saying for years. Like, when it comes to science and faith, we need an interdisciplinary approach. We need scientists, theologians, philosophers, pastors. We need everybody who has a dog in this fight to, to get together and talk about this sort of things. Because, you know, we're not all experts in every single field, and we can contribute some knowledge to... The conversation that maybe another guy can't, like you know, you got a New Testament scholar, you got an Old Testament scholar, you got a geneticist, you got, um, you got a systematic theologian, and we can all like contribute to, you know, moving the conversation forward. Whereas if you just had one type of field, you might get some good information. Or you, but-
1: have, you have all those fields, but they're just not talking. If they're, not yeah. not, if they're just monologuing next to each other. What's the Yeah,
0: chance? they're not they're not interacting. So we you know we do need like interdisciplinary work when it comes to science and faith.
1: Yeah, um, so you're actually cutting. I mean, first of all, isn't that image that you're saying isn't it beautiful? Wouldn't you want to be part of that conversation? Yeah, absolutely. I do too. That's what I, I mean. One of the cool things actually about this book is that I was able to gather. I got a grant um, from the John Templeton Foundation. Who are very supportive of this work, actually. Um, uh, even you know, as a lot of evolutionary creationists, we're looking at a at it. So I give them a lot of credit for that. But um, well, what I got to do is actually bring you know about thirty scholars from across the spectrum to St. Louis <laughs> to where to where I work. We got to just kind of talk about it together. I can tell you, some of those fun conversations in my life. <laughs> just talking about the different ways of this, uh, how to think about original sin, the image of God, what it means to be human. And, you know, that conversation is starting to spill out in the public. I just gave a talk at Columbia university where uh, Nathan Lentz, who's an atheist, who's part of that conversation publicly explained why he thinks that there's a lot of legitimacy to the idea of original sin. Isn't that great?
0: <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, I just atheist, put a
1: long it? post online about it. I'll send you a link to put, to, to include in the description. Okay. But, but like, I think that would be so much fun. And I think, I think the real question um, and actually maybe that's even the core point of the book. It's not even really about anatomy. Some people are going to think this is about, Oh, he's trying to press a particular view of Adam and Eve. That's not it. The first part of the book is called fracture. The last part of the book is called crossroads and the two, there's only one chapter in each of those. And they're both named after virtues. The first chapter really talks about how the questions of origins, the questions of anatomy have really fractured us. They've really created injuries where we end up talking past each other and we don't really understand each other. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of confusion and misunderstanding. What I suggest is that we really need to start engaging questions from one another, even from the people we really disagree with, with courage, curiosity, and empathy. The last last, uh, chapter, the last part of the book is called Crossroads, which is supposed to be a word that refers to exactly that grand conversation you're talking about. And I talk about Really, in that chapter, how it would look like and what it could be for us to really engage our differences with virtue, too, and to treat each other with well, the virtues I talk about they come from John Anazu, who wrote a book called Confident Pluralism. They're humility, tolerance, and patience. And I mean these in a particular way, he means in a particular way. I mean, humility meaning that when i talk to someone i may not be able to change their view so that means that there are some people listening to this that are convinced that adam and eve are a myth i accept that i understand i may never be able to change your view and that is okay i understand there's people listening to this that think that evolution is a myth and that also is okay to me i understand that even if i'm right and you're wrong that i may never be able to change your mind and that is okay by me um, tolerance means that what I really want to do, and this is really the purpose of the book, it's not actually to promote a particular view of Adam and Eve. What it is, is I'm trying to make space for differences. And so even for the people I disagree with, I want to make space for them so they can have some legitimacy in the conversation, not, not by violating theology or hermeneutics or, or our science, but really being true to those things to actually make space for differences. And that means laying down some desire I have to try and advocate for my own point of view. And then finally, it's not just that I want to coexist, there's this question of patience, which we might also call endurance, or I sometimes explain it as really wanting to understand and to be understood. I think the purpose of the genealogical Adam and Eve is to create a larger conversation about the grand questions about what it means to be human, about how sacred and natural history might fit together, and how to explore these things together. Not as a tiny sect in the church, but in a grand conversation that includes secular scientists alongside, you know, the Adam and Eve mythicists like David, uh, you know, Dennis Lamoureux, and and many of the people at BioLogos, and also the literalists, uh, Reasons to Believe, and Answers in Genesis. And even uh, my colleagues that are atheists and, and Jewish and all that sort. I mean, I think there's an opportunity for a grand conversation. One of the grand conversations that's been going on for thousands of years. Like, I want to have that fun.
0: I want to I want to
1: invite that party, that conversation, that dialogue.
0: Yeah, me too. Now, how do you interpret the image of God? I know that there's different views on this. I myself— uh, I take the more vocational view that Michael Heiser talks about in The Unseen Realm and J Richard Middleton advocates in Liberating Image. Others think that it's more of a, you know, a mental thing. You got rationality, free will, a moral compass. I I definitely think that's a prerequisite. I mean, if you if you if you take the vocational view, you have to take that the mental view because you can't like you can't carry out the vocation that God sets out for you unless you're a rational free will creature. You know, gorillas don't make they don't image god very well but like you know what what's your uh take on that
1: so my take is that we need some better questions <laughs> and so uh there's a whole chapter that's on the image of god it's called humans and theology as you recall <laughs> um uh and i think that the image of god is this thing that really attracts a lot of people's attention but i was actually very surprised at how much disagreement what there was among the theologians and not only that, I was actually fairly surprised that um, that the introspection, even among theologians, wasn't fully there. Because there's some you know distinctions that we got to make. There's like questions we have to be able to answer. But I don't even think the questions have been posed. So I think there's a couple questions that we need to look at. Let me give a few of them. Okay, one is if there's people outside the garden, could they be in the image of God? Hmm. I I don't actually know if that's been well thought out. Actually, I know for a fact that has not been well thought out. Um, Here's another one. What is the scriptural basis for saying the image of God originates with Adam and Eve? Now, what's pretty interesting is that Genesis 1 doesn't mention Adam and Eve, at least not directly. And that's where the image of God passages. Genesis 2 talks about Adam and Eve, but there's no mention of the image of God. Adam and Eve really seem to be important because of the fall, not because of the image of God. If you don't know how to answer the question about whether or not, you know, the image of God could arise before Adam and Eve or not. So I just think that there is a lot of thought that has to be put into that. And that's even before we get to the question of what exactly is this image of God? And, of course, there's been a historical debate about that for a while. I think what's going on actually is um, what we're struggling with, I think is the difference between ontogeny and ontology. Ontogeny is like this effort to classify the way things are right now. Ontology is how we try to explain how things got to be the way they are. And uh, the image of God has really factored in an important way in the ontology of what humans are, how we explain what humans are. Humans are the only things on earth right now that are in the image of God. And so that's true. But what is really left out of that ontolo- uh, on, on, ontology is ontogeny. Of how did it get to be that humans are the only people with the image of God on Earth right now? That's a separate question. It allows for the fact that there might have been different in the past. And when you look at Genesis, there's several things that really start to press and challenge this notion of what our, the view of the image of God is. I gave you one already. The other one is Cain's wife. Like, where exactly did she come from? It seems to be fairly unremarkable. There's also... This uh, there's all the passages in Genesis six about Nephilim and the the sons of God and the daughters of Adam. There's been like long for like thousands of years. There's been speculation about what that means about these other beings that are somehow interbreeding with Adam and Eve's descendants. It doesn't make a ton of sense um, from our current point of view until we realize that what genesis is doing is really unsettling our view of like these nice categories in the past so maybe it is true that there's clear distinctions and divisions now but how to get to be this way i think that's going to help us and so that's i think the question Um,
0: yeah one of the things that one of the questions that i i ponder is the neanderthals they are not they're not homo sapiens but they seem to be uh just as rational and and you know, advanced debate as in my
1: scientists are. are they? The uh, debate is how rational they are, but yeah, you're right. They are very human. They're far more yeah, human well, than animals. Yeah, animal, right? well,
0: maybe they're not as rational as you. I mean, we don't, there's only so much you can know from fossils and archaeology, but they, they seem to be, you know, smart enough to make tools and, sure. and hunt and stuff like that. And so I, I, you know, I just wonder, like, did Adam and Eve, when they were kicked out of the garden, did all of a sudden did they run into a Neanderthal and what was that like and are they made in the image of God and uh, you know, it's just really interesting uh, question there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it is. I mean, uh, Neanderthals, are they the image of God? It turns out there's debate among creationists about that. There's debate among scientists about how human they are. And in the end, like, if Adam and Eve are recent, it all becomes a moot point because there's no Neanderthals across the earth.
0: Yeah, <laughs> you know. yeah, they would have died out. <laughs> they would have died out before Adam. But, and Eve. but I'll
1: say further though, if you take taken more Adam view, right, in the, right now I'm in the middle of writing a book with William Lane Craig, so we've been spending a lot of time talking about this. Um, he thinks Adam and Eve, um, and he takes the image of God as being a much more structuralist view. So he thinks to be connected to like the rise of the mind and things like that. And he doesn't really like the idea of people outside of the garden, or wants to really minimize that. So he's like thinking about Adam and Eve maybe half a million years ago. Okay. Oh wow. <laughs> And if that's the case, well, then certainly Neanderthals would be in the image of God.
0: <laughs> yeah, I wonder how I wonder how Craig would make the, like, how would he deal with the genealogies, though? Because, I mean, I, I've I've heard Hugh Ross and Fuz Rana say, and I agree with them, that I don't think you can stretch the genealogies back well, to half a million years. He would uh, say it's
1: all mythical. The right way to read it is all mythical, except for these hints that tell you that there is a proto-history here that somehow got in... I don't think he specifies how, but 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 I could fill in the gap of like maybe some sort of like prophetic inspired history that kind of arises out of this. And so, uh, you know, that's his view. He's actually put a lot about it on public already. I mean, I actually have a great deal of respect for how he's working this out in public. I wish more leaders had the boldness to do what he's doing. I don't think he knows exactly where he's going to land on all this. But the key thing I want to get at though is some people will say that, oh, he doesn't like the genealogical Adam and Eve, but actually it makes space for him. The part that he entirely agrees with is that Genesis doesn't tell us one darn thing about genetics. It does not tell us that Adam and Eve are the genetic sole progenitors of everyone. It tells us that they are the genealogical sole progenitors of everyone. And so there could be people outside the garden, and he would be able to work with that. He doesn't particularly like it, but it's not like a problem. It doesn't feel like it's an inerrancy problem. It's just not fun. And there's ways to deal with it, too, that aren't so bad. But really what Scripture's teaching is genealogical soul progenitorship, meaning that we all descend genealogically from this original couple, Adam and Eve, even if their lineage ended up interbreeding with others. Now, that ends up being a really key point because, like, for example, um, there's some pretty important books that have had a big influence, like a book by uh, Dennis Venema and Scott McKnight uh it's called atom and the genome you may have heard of it yeah haven't it's read it yet
0: but, uh, but i have heard of it what's actually
1: pretty interesting to see how they define the traditional view um they define the traditional view and, and biologos does this too they um they define the, the traditional view as genetic soul progenitorship and it was interesting even young earth creationists howled at this When his book came out, if you read the reviews by them and they say there is no place we say that original sin needs to transmit by DNA, even AIG before that book came out was very emphatic that we don't think that original sin transmits by DNA. But that's actually how they define it. They say or not by Logos in this case, um, I'm talking about Scott McKnight and Dennis Venema. They define the traditional view as saying original sin transmits by DNA. (laughs)
0: yeah, I, yeah, I, I've never I've never held that, and I, I don't know uh, anyone who does. I, it is kind of a mystery to me how the sin nature gets passed on. I kind of think that you know, if the traditionist view of how the soul forms, you know, soul gives birth to other souls, like it might be something in the soul. But it's just sure. I, I, I don't know I mean it's just one of those theological questions that I, I don't think
1: well but I think the thing that we can yeah. come to though is that a traditional view doesn't insist that it's by DNA can you yeah
0: yeah yeah and and uh, you know even even when uh, Augustine uh, was was writing and he he thought it was passed on like he didn't like Augustine this was in the like the 400s he didn't have any concept of DNA
1: yeah and even that part of precisely how it's passed on was never canonized it was just kind of saying oh this is what the biologists think maybe this is how it happens but here's the thing like this is a big deal because it creates a lot of space it creates space to say oh it's not genetic so it turns out if you take out that genetic progenitorship piece out of the argument that dennis venema was making against adam and Eve, which i'm saying even you know even places like reasons to believe and william and craig have you know, there's been now become like, a, I would say, a pretty established consensus that they don't actually care about DNA per se. That's actually not the progenitorship they're concerned with. I mean, maybe if there's no one outside the garden, it's genetic progenitorship by accident, too. But scripture's talking about genealogical progenitorship. Then the argument that's being made for like literally, you know, decades against Adam and Eve is just not valid. It's just not a valid thing. It's like it's a complete misdirection. And that, that's just, like I'd say, I think that's just really good news. <laughs> um, even if you think Adam and Eve are a myth, that should be just good news to know that there's more space for people yeah. to think differently.
0: Yeah, you know, it, it's good It's good that you – it's good to know that we have options and we don't have to – that's what I do at Cerebral Faith. Like I, I, I believe evolution is – True, I I believe it's you know I've looked at the arguments for and against by scientists. I'm not a scientist myself, so I'm at the all I have to do, all I can do is just listen to the arguments from those who are, and I think the the guys who think evolution is true, I I think they have a stronger case. But I'm not convinced. I'm not. What I want to do is I like you. I want to make space for people. Like if people they can't give up evolution, well. Hey, you know, you don't have to, you don't, you can come to the cross without giving up evolution. If you think evolution is total, um, bovine feces, that's okay too. Uh, what I care about is that people, af- uh, affirm that God is the creator of everything. And, you know, we, we are, we can agree to disagree on how he did so.
1: Well, so I want to do better than that. I mean, I don't disagree with you, but I want to do better. I want to actually find a way how we can all enter the same conversation together and explore grander questions together. So I think that's actually at least part of what I'm accomplishing in this. Cause look, you don't have to agree that Adam and Eve are real or evolution is real to enter a story and and talk about it with people, right? Yeah. And start to explore things like original sin, to explore things like the image of God, what it means to be human, like all those sorts of things. And you can still kind of hold on to the idea, well, I don't actually think this story is entirely true. I think that the evolution part is false. Or I don't think the story is entirely true. I think that the Adam and Eve part of it is false. Sure. Go ahead and do that. But we can still enter that story together and start actually having an exchange at that crossroad once again, right? So I hope that this... Yeah. This story actually becomes a geography, a place where people can have an exchange that's more than just, okay, just agree to disagree. But, hey, let's actually have some fun talking about stuff together.
0: Yeah, well, I was I was thinking more in terms of uh, what you have to, you know, like, I'll stand my ground on the Trinity and the resurrection of Jesus. But I'm not going to, you, you know, the whole how do you interpret Genesis, how do you interpret uh, Darwin's theory of evolution, like those aren't—I don't think those are hills to die on. That no. there, you know, we can get, we can, you know, there's some, there's some, there's some wiggle room under this large umbrella we call Christianity.
1: Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I think, uh, uh, yeah, I, I think, I think part of what's going on too is people talk about apologetics. I think most apologetics we see out there is, I mean, you're, you can see yourself an apologist. Would you or no? Yeah, I would. So I think there's two types of apologetics. Um, you use this word called defense. Some people call that like a type of negative apologetics. Um, I don't mean negative isn't bad, but just it's, it's, um, uh, it's yeah, it's, um, it's kind of in the context of conflict, right? It's in the context of, uh, there's one worldview out here, there's another one out here, I'm going to show how this one is better than that one. Or uh, defense of claims, and I'm not even saying that's always bad, but the way I've really come to really appreciate apologetics is understanding it with a different meaning, uh, meaning explanation. So apologia also means explanation, and I think explanation is, uh, gives me a way to think about um, what I would call positive apologetics, where it's not so much about showing people that their views are wrong, um, even if they are wrong, but inviting them into something that in a positive sense is really beautiful. And that maybe even builds off stuff that they already agree with and shows how it makes sense altogether. Does that make any sense?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I class, I have like this classification uh, classification of, of offensive and defensive apologetics. Offensive is showing that Christianity is true. Like, the kalam argument, or the argument for the resurrection, defensive is like, you know, responding to the problem of evil or divine hiddenness or some alleged Bible contradictions.
1: So then, what's like the third category you use to describe what I'm talking about? I, I,
0: I think I think I would classify it as, uh, I, I don't know, um, maybe maybe uh, maybe a mixture of the two. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I guess I mean so one of the places I drew a lot of inspiration from was C.S. Lewis. So I, I liked how he built, he wrote stories to invite people into. You know, um, I, I reference in a key chapter, I think it's chapter 14, when I type of the speculative narrative. I, I reference uh, religion and rocketry. You remember that article that he wrote, where he talks about, where he just starts to imagine what it would mean for theology if we ever discovered intelligent aliens. And I, I think that's just a really fun conversation to be had. Um, so I, I just think there's more opportunity for that. I think people want to enter that conversation with us, and I want to create places for that fun and enjoyable story to happen. And, you know, it's not that so much that people are going to think they're wrong. It's just much that if they don't participate, man, they're going to be missing out.
0: <laughs> yeah. On, and it goes for
1: the non-Christians alike.
0: On page 13 of your book, in the introduction, you say – Quote, personally, I am a Christian affirming both evolutionary science and the Laus- Lausanne. Am I saying Lausanne that right? Lasan Covenant. But I am neither an evolutionary creationist nor a theistic evolutionist. Uh, end quote. What do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, so um, I'm a Christian, and the Lausanne Covenant is one of uh, the core documents in uh, evangelicalism. I really encourage you to look it up. Um, and I affirm that so I'm an evangelical Christian too. Um, and I, I affirm evolutionary science and but I say I'm not an evolutionary creationist and I'm not a theistic evolutionist. Now I get what's going through your head. By some definitions, maybe I can be squeezed into those because some people would even define theistic evolution by that or define evolutionary creation by that. But I'm just not comfortable with those labels and maybe there's something I'm trying to say, Um, About my own identity and also what's possible in the future for other people too. like over and over again, um, both scholars and people in the church, I find people that are just not really satisfied or not really um, don't really see themselves as a good way to put it with the dominant positions that are put out there. Um, by evolutionary creation and theistic evolution. They just look at that, and it doesn't seem... I mean, oftentimes they'll entirely agree that it's a faithful type of Christianity, that uh, the people who hold that view are fully Christian and really belong as important voices in the Church, as I also believe, too, but they also just aren't the same type of Christians as they are. And that's honestly how I feel, too. And I think in the end, you know there isn't a single organization or a particular view that has like some sort of stranglehold on science uh i really want people in the church to know that if they want to engage with mainstream science in a different way than those dominant ways that they can i mean we can find some new types of theistic evolution maybe in the future
0: yeah yeah and maybe
1: some of those voices too they don't actually speak for us and that's okay
0: Yeah, like, well, you know, the way I've been using the term evolutionary creationism is like the same way that I use the word Christian. Like, if you're a Christian, you believe that God exists, you believe that Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, the Apostles' Creed, and all that. Uh, But there's, you know, there's a wide umbrella for disagreements on things like, you know, eternal conscious torment and annihilationism, Arminianism, Calvinism, you know, uh, lots of different things like that. And I kind of saw evolutionary creationism the same way. You believe that God exists, created the world. He did so through evolution. Now, do you believe Adam and Eve are a myth? Are they historical? Do you take John Walton's do? Do you accept the genealogical Adam and Eve hypothesis as true or even plausible? Um, You know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, we're not like monolithic when it comes to this well, view so and, maybe, and maybe it's
1: not well, well actually historically it's... you guys have been monolithic in the nine the creation of adam and eve this book unsettles it and uh so it it's, it remains a question what'll happen in the future so um I, I just don't think we know yet and um and you know you read the book and you walked away with a different view and you know if you were the president of biologos or, you know, or like a prominent person, you know, maybe that's how it would go. But, you know, they've also known about this for a while. And, you know, we're seeing where they end up. Yeah. You know, we, we just don't know. And, and and I don't, you know, I'm not an evolutionary creationist. I think evolutionary creationists, and you are one, and that's okay. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's okay for them to define their priorities and their view and their organizations the way they want to. I really respect that. It's just that a lot of us... Uh, um, you know, are outside that tent and we got to find a different way. We got to find our own way and, um, and, you know, being conversation with that. And I think that's an exciting thing in that, right? So I've, actually, I've actually thought about this a lot. So right now, actually, um, there's a really important theological meaning right now happening where there's actually some other people talking about this It's actually become pretty clear to a lot of other people that evolution and creation is not really broad enough of a term to describe it. So Michael Murray and John Churchill, Um, who are people from John Templeton Foundation, originally now they're in a different place, uh, who actually were core funders for the BioLogos Foundation, actually, have a paper that they put in there called Mere Theistic Evolution that is getting responses from Stephen Myers, uh, Paul Nelson, Jeff Schloss, and William Lane Craig, and maybe one or two other people, and really trying to kind of suss out what actually is the core of this. And I think it's actually very striking that they're not using the term evolutionary creation. One term that's being put forward is, um, is mere theistic cre- evolution. I don't really like that one so much. I think one that actually really makes the most sense to me is, is Christians that affirm evolutionary science. And so I, uh, I like the idea of calling myself a Christian because that means I'm a follower of Christ, and that puts my identity there. I don't like calling myself a creationist because that puts my identity in creation, and that's not where it lies, even though I affirm the doctrine of creation. I don't want to call myself an evolutionist because that puts my identity in with evolution. And as if I'm building a worldview off of creation or evolution. And I don't really do that. I build my worldview off of Jesus. So I'm a Christian.
0: Yeah, I'm well. A Christian. Well, I don't I don't really have a, a problem with it, uh, with any with any of that, because it's basically just saying that this describes the kind of view that I hold. If I change my mind, like, you know, I won't be like you know, um, if i won't so like, 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 the like, in the doc, I like in the doctrine of like in the doctrine of hell for example there are what we call traditionalists and conditionalists well you know i would fall under the conditionalist umbrella right now but you know if i changed my mind and i was convinced that eternal conscious torment is how hell really is i would not call myself a conditionalist anymore i call myself a traditionalist
1: yeah, I guess I just don't see those ideas as central, so I would never want to um, own them in that way. That's just me. But, you know, let me tell you a story uh, that happened when I was actually on Speaker's Bureau for Biologos. Um, it, was, um, it was before I put forward this stuff and, 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 you know, just needed to leave. But um, I had a conversation with a theologian, actually, uh, and, and she told me that she actually really didn't have a problem with evolution, per se. I said, like, oh, you're an evolutionary creationist. And she's like, no, I'm not. I'm like, what? I had exactly the same response you did, okay? And I was thinking, but wait a minute. But I thought it's this. And she's like, oh, no, 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 You don't understand. I mean, like, I'm just not okay with that. And she points to kind of how um, evolutionary creation was understood in her context. Like that version of affirming evolution as a Christian, she just could not go along with. And so then the question now becomes, is when I encounter that person, I've actually encountered a lot of people like her. What do we do with people like that? Do we do we try and just like clonially label them with the names they don't even really like? Um, You know, how do we give them a voice so their concerns can be heard? And you know, I don't know what the answer is, but I do know that um, I kind of find myself outside the major camps right now, um, finding a lot of home with people like that. And not the, to the exclusion of others, I think that young earth creationists, old earth creationists, and evolutionary creationists have a really important role in the conversation. Um, I think there's faithful Christians in all these camps. Um, it's just not my camp. Does that make any sense? <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, I guess so. I, I and I think this is really just um, a problem with names. You know, names can be misleading. You know, the Big Bang is not an explosion of pre-existing matter in space, but you know, Fred Hoyle he slapped, he he derogatorily slapped the label on that, and it stuck, and it's mislead it's misled a lot of people. Uh, the to me, you know, to quote William Shakespeare, "A rose by any other name is just as sweet." You know, I, I'm a Christian, and I think that common ancestry is true and whether you want to call that an evolutionary creationist a theistic evolutionist See, that's why I like a, a, a christian a christian uh a christian yeah. who affirms evolutionary science you know whatever you want to slap on that that's that's what i am See, what, the way
1: you talk though evan i mean you don't actually sound like a creationist you sound like a christian you sound like a christian that affirms evolutionary science i mean so i think it's a bit of a misnomer to call you an evolutionary creationist frankly but, you know, if you want to be, that's great. <laughs> now, I, mean, I do actually think there are evolutionary creationists that really believe that it's important to emphasize that Adam and Eve were created by evolutionary means, not the noble creation. There are people like that. I think they really are evolutionary creationists. Oh,
0: well, I, I just I just believe that uh, I just believe that you know most of life, you know, Adam and Eve may be accepted, maybe not. You know, science doesn't say one way or the other, as you nicely point out in your book. But you know that's that's how life arose baby adam and eve are the exceptions
1: yeah i mean like i said i'm, I'm like i'd say like that what you're saying i'm just saying that sounds very much to me like a christian that affirms evolutionary science it doesn't sound like a creationist that's not how creationists
0: talk okay well i guess that's what i am then and and also what what i what i know what i've noticed is i noticed that it, you know paul contrasts the jesus with Adam you know Adam is the first Adam and Jesus is the last Adam yeah wouldn't it be wouldn't it be uh, it wouldn't it be very interesting that the first Adam and the last Adam were both created through miraculous means but every other human being on the face of the planet came about through biological process hey I wonder where you got that idea from (laughs) Uh, you got that so, from my book, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, actually, actually, I, I I had that even before. i was I was uh, when I read the synopsis, I was like, you know what? That would be like that would be like tantamount to the Virgin Birth. But then I saw you talk about that in your book. I'm like, oh, hey, you picked on that too. You picked up on yeah, that too.. Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: I, I think that's actually one of the things that's actually really interesting about how this plays out. So there's another book coming out by a guy named John Garvey. He's out in uh, United Kingdom. He's writing a book called The Generations of Heaven and Earth. So, I mean, I, I, I basically am arguing that this basic approach is, is valid. It's not, like, immediately flawed. And let's have a good conversation about it. And there's a lot of theologians writing books to kind of continue the conversation. John Garvey is going this step further. He's actually saying that, you know, if you actually go down this path of a genealogical Adam and Eve, it actually helps theology, it actually makes it so it's more coherent in that end. It's not like a challenge. It actually ends up making all the pieces fit together. That's a pretty radical claim, and I think he might actually be onto something here. Yeah. And I think this is one of those places where it's like that, where all of a sudden, you know, the new creation of Adam and Eve starts to have much stronger parallels to the virgin birth and to the statements about Jesus. And he really does give legitimacy to, you know, Adam being the first and Jesus being the second, even though there were people before Adam and people after Jesus.
0: <laughs> yeah. now before we go, I, I want to ask, do you see that your hypo you see your hypothesis as making it easier for people to become evolutionary creationists or uh, you know theistic evolution or just, you know just Christians who affirm evolution, uh, Christians in evolutionary science, as you put it. Um, I know from my personal perspective, it took me a long time to wrestle with this issue and it was because of adam and eve and as i speak to young earth creationists and old earth creationist people in the aig camp and the rtb camp this is their number one issue uh, and i remember hearing uh, an episode of the cross-examined podcast where frank turek was i think it was a QA episode i'm not sure but he was talking about um Oh, or I think I think it might have been the episode where he was talking about what is essential to crea- Christianity and what isn't. And he said, um, you know, evolution it doesn't it doesn't prove atheism. It doesn't it wouldn't mean that God doesn't exist or that Jesus didn't rose from the dead. But he said it would just mean that uh, the Bible is not inerrant because you wouldn't have Adam being made from the dust of the ground and Eve being made from his rib. And all. He, he saw it as a opposed to a challenge to inerrancy. And so I'm wondering, like, if this becomes more widely known, if we can really get this to trickle down into the pews, do you think this will go a long way in diminishing the anti-evolution attitude in the church?
1: If anti-evolutionists have been truthful about why they oppose evolution, they will no longer oppose evolution. Yeah, and actually, we can see that there has been several truthful people who have resisted and opposed evolution that no longer do anymore. Now, what's interesting about it, though, is many of them are not becoming evolutionary creationists. One of the most interesting articles that came out was one by Ken Keithley, who basically says that uh, that the genealogical Adam and Eve, from his point of view, even with evolution everywhere, but the novo creation of Adam and Eve is essentially old earth creationism.
0: Hmm. So I guess it's just that that whole terminology debate
1: <laughs> so what i would say is that creationism or creationists at their best the best versions of it it's actually about scripture yeah that's what it's about and if and if in this this handles what they've been saying for decades if not over a century what their concern is and it handles it head on and it does it with good science Good theology. I even have atheists agreeing with me. I have people across the spectrum agreeing with me.
0: Yeah, and I've I've uh, I've looked at some of the people who've endorsed your book and uh, given you some some good thoughts. You know, William Lane Craig, Hugh Ross, even Daryl Fogg. Daryl Fogg says, "I'm one of the many scientists who have maintained that the existence of Adam and Eve as ancestors of all people on Earth is incompatible with the scientific data." In this book, Joshua Swamidass effectively demonstrates that people like me. Stuck in the specific genetic paradigm were wrong.
1: I know, isn't that crazy?
0: <laughs> like, well, yeah,
1: all, I got a credit to Daryl Falk. I mean, I think, I think, I mean, I don't know the details, but I think there's some risk there for him to say this. <laughs> and you know, and I and I think that there's just some real integrity that he showed in being able to. I mean, I've just never seen someone admit that a large portion of the work they've done in public is wrong in the endorsement of a book.
0: Yeah, well, th- this is a this is a really great book, and I really, uh, I really hope that it does two things. I hope that for those who are atheists because of evolution, I hope that they'll start taking seriously the claims of Christianity in the Bible, and I hope that those who are Christians who may be skeptical or uh, maybe suspicious of the claims of scientists, they'll that they'll start to take the claims of science a lot more seriously, and that we can move forward in this. Um, in this discussion of origins. Now, for those of you listening to this podcast, uh, the book is not out yet, but it will be on December 10th, uh, 2019. You can get it in paperback and you can get it in. No, no, only, no. only
1: you can only oh, get a Kindle copy. and a hard copy. Okay.
0: Kindle and, and hard. it's actually sold out right now.
1: Already. We actually got through, our, I mean, we actually sold all the copies on our first printing and it's not even out yet. Oh, so,
0: how about that okay so when when they get more uh you can get it on hardcover <laughs> hardcover and Kindle thank you for listening to the cerebral faith podcast if you'd like to support this ministry go to patreon.com slash uh, yeah patreon com slash cerebral faith uh thank you for listening god bless and i will see you next time